The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day and welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, President and Dean of Monterey College of Law. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Wagner, and we're delighted today to have our guest co-host, who's been a frequent guest on our show, Attorney Michael and law, attorney and law professor Michael Cohen. Stephen and Michael, welcome today. Hey, Mitch, Mitch, Michael, glad to join. We're at full strength. We good, are. Good to be here with you all. So today we're going to talk about something that at first might seem a bit obscure, but I am absolutely convinced by the end of today's show, everyone who's listening is going to understand the importance of probably the most unknown but most influential lawyer in the justice system, the Solicitor General. So Stephen, I think you thought I was going to say it was going to be you, didn't you? <laughs> no, I I, I think we already test flighted it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so as a as in the district attorney's office, you might be one of the most influential lawyers within the county, but not within the United States. So, we've asked Michael Cohen, who's a law professor, teaches constitutional laws, an international lawyer with Shepard Mullen, to come and help us understand this. What I think is somewhat of a mysterious role of the solicitor. General of the United States. So, Michael, tell us a little about what the heck does the Solicitor General of the United States do? A person, I might say, has been known to be called the 10th Justice of the Supreme Court. That's a pretty lofty title. It is. You know, there's a few things to note about the Solicitor General of the United States, uh, Stephen and Mitch, that's quite fascinating. Um, what is first of all, but before all of that, what does the Solicitor General do? The That's a good question. The Solicitor General, <laughs> plain and simple, represents the United States of America in its highest court, the United States Supreme Court. And the office of the Solicitor General is charged with that duty, with representing the United States of America in cases before the United States Supreme Court. With that duty come some things, deciding which cases that the United States loses in lower courts that it should appeal. Okay, so they get to decide which cases to bring up on appeal on behalf of the United States. Most people don't realize that. So he's the lawyer, he or she, because they've been both, is the lawyer for the United States, and they have a lot of judgment calls to make on those types of cases, because there must be hundreds, if not thousands, of cases that could come up on appeal, 
and they only get to pick a handful. Right? That's right. So you know, and 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 believe it or not, it extends all the way down, Mitch, to the trial courts. So if the United States loses in a federal district court, which is the trial level court for the federal system, if the United States loses and it's going to appeal to a circuit court, it at least has to get approval from the office of the Solicitor General to appeal to the circuit court. For our circuit courts, for, for decisions where the United States loses at the circuit court, the discretion to appeal that again lies again with the with, with office of the Solicitor General, with the Solicitor General handles that appeal fully. So, you know, Stephen, we, we've talked a lot on the show about the role of, in many cases, the Supreme Court, and we've had Michael on here to talk about the role of the Supreme Court and how those cases craft American law. They set policy, they set law. And so here we have an individual who's rarely known, and in fact, I, my guess is probably no one out except maybe you, Michael, actually know who's who's the current, I guess, acting Solicitor General, because yeah. we don't have one at the moment. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so every step along the way, they're involved in, in helping decide what cases are going to, in this case, make case law. Yeah, yeah they, you know what, I was going to add, uh, Michael and Mitch, you know, it's interesting because if you look at the names, and of course I will admit I had to go back and look at the history of who held the post, but uh, Ken Starr uh, was once Solicitor General, Robert Bork. Uh, it's interesting to see Ted Olson, the name. name that many of us know. Ted Olson, that's right. Thurgood Marshall. Uh, so it's interesting to see... Uh, there's really quite a list of, of luminaries of those that have gone on to actually serve on the high court or to have been involved in, in very other prominent roles. Yeah, and you know, Stephen, I want to come back to, because the first Solicitor General should be somebody near and dear to you, your heart, but um, you, you may not understand who it was or why, and I'd like to loop back to that. Um, rounding out the duties, there are two other things the Solicitor General does that are extraordinarily important. One is the Solicitor General decides when to file a friend of the court brief. That is um, the brief uh, or a decision as to when the United States will weigh in on a case that is pending before the Supreme That's right. Court. That's right, so-called amicus Brief, the right? amicus brief, exactly, Stephen. And that's a really big deal because the United States frequently has a view on a lot of cases, and that view is a very interesting view for this reason. The United States uh, Office of Solicitor General is indeed an advocate, but not an advocate in the sense that you would normally think, an advocate for a client who wants to win. The Solicitor General's advocacy is for justice, the, the the entire goal is justice, and that's the kind of duty that you share, Stephen, as your role as a, as a prosecutor. Sure, and you'll understand that. That's a, it's a very different discretion and a different hat. It's not all about winning, and in fact, it comes with the duty to disclose when there has been injustice. It's called a confession of error. That's another responsibility of the solicitor general. The solicitor general must confess error when. A, a injustice has been committed by perhaps an erroneous fact or other things. And then the last thing that's really important that the Office of Solicitor General does, and there are many other many important things, but the big ones are uh, that the Solicitor General answers uh, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court often makes a call for the view 
of the United States, a call for the view of the Solicitor General. And that's where the Solicitor General gets this role of the 10th Justice. Um, the Solicitor General will respond to the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court asks for the views of the United States. And that's in cases where the United States is not a direct party. Correct. And it could be just on whether or not to take cert. When and the, what does that mean? So for uh, the non-lawyers? So, so for non-lawyers, there are about 7,500 appeals to the United States Supreme Court every year. The Supreme Court takes anywhere from 75 to 125 of those appeals. So out of the 7,500 plus appeals, you know, about 100 you know, on average are granted. Uh, when the Solicitor General urges the Supreme Court to take a case, it is almost always granted um, uh, a hearing on appeal by the Supreme Court. So the Solicitor General's views are very influential that way. And in that 10th Justice role, Mitch, a couple of things a lot of people might not know. Number one, the, the Solicitor General is the only officer of the United States that is required to be a lawyer. Oh, I saw that in the write-up, and I was surprised about the that. The Solicitor General is actually required by statute, by the statute in 1870, to be a lawyer. The only officer of the United States to be a lawyer. As we know from our president-elect, it's not even required that you know we have a constitution to be president <laughs> of the United States, let alone yeah, read that's it. Interesting. Uh, another thing is that they... get Stephen riled up here. Now, the, wait a minute. The, the other, I'm trying to. <laughs> I always do, Mitch. Now, now the other thing about this... I know he hasn't read it. I suspect he knows we have it. I don't think he does. <laughs> uh, 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 somebody will have to convince me of that. I'm sure he does not know how many articles or what the amendments mean or anything else. Um, the Solicitor General is also... Oh. But he's going to have a Solicitor General to help him with those things. One would think. <laughs> uh, the Solicitor General also is the only one of the only officers in um, the United States government that has a literally, literally a physical office in two branches. The Solicitor General has an office in the Supreme Court building, and the Solicitor General has an office at the United States Department of Justice headquarters at 10th and Constitution Avenue. If any of you have ever been to Washington, D.C., you will know that is a very long block. <laughs> so let me stop just and think about that for just a minute, because the idea that the Supreme Court could reach out to the government's lawyer and ask them an opinion on something, it, it, it really surprised me because that's the same lawyer who could be appearing for them as an advocate for a party in a case. And that strikes me as that may be the only place in the justice continuum that that happens as well. I mean, Stephen, that would be like you getting a chance on you know, half of your cases to sit chummy with the trial judge, and then on the other half, you're there prosecuting against the defense counsel who never gets that opportunity with the judge. That doesn't seem quite fair to me. Yeah, it, it certainly seems like it's a, a true test of objectivity or the ability to remain objective. And I think Michael was careful to point out that in the rare, well, maybe not rare, but in the instances where the Solicitor General is asked for an opinion uh, as a prerequisite, I'm assuming, Michael, and correct me if I'm wrong, there must be very clear support to show that there isn't any uh, bias, either optically or, or actual bias. Yeah, this, 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 if you think about it, in a nation of lawyers, and, uh, you know, I hate to ever, ever call us that, but, 
you know, in, in many ways, uh, the, uh, lawyers have been a, a strong fabric of this nation's history. Lawyers and generals sure. since its since its get go. Um, imagine the scrutiny that the Solicitor General is under. Uh, you, you know, if if there are literally millions of lawyers constantly reviewing every word and every brief and every action, it is really one of the most transparent um, positions to be in and bias is typically never the role. And, um, uh, now, they do uh, work for the president. It's right? the king so, in his own court, yeah, so, uh, for sure. So, that, so that's one of the things we kind of skipped past. It came up in my mind to talk about this now because the next solicitor general, as with many of the cabinet officials, although this is not a cabinet official uh, per se, the solicitor general is appointed by the president. Right. It'll probably be somebody that's a direct blood relative to Trump with uh, commingled <laughs> financial interests and everything that happens. No, 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 no. Uh, but it, but it hopefully is, it won't. It, but it is interesting that that in the and we'll come back a little later and talk about some of the candidates. But I but I thought it was fascinating that. It's a fairly short list, but there's something very common to the list that every name for the potential solicitor general is from one of the mega firms on the East well, Coast. You've got yeah, Williams and Connolly, King and Spalding, Jones Day, Kirkland and Ellis. I mean, this is a who's who of the elite Firms. Well, let's talk about that. Jones Day started in Cleveland. Kirkland and Ellis is a Chicago firm. King right. and Spalding is an Atlanta firm. So I wouldn't call those Washington institutions. <laughs> okay, by any all means. right, fair enough. Now, Although they uh, are represented uh, there uh, now. Cor cor correct. They all have significant <laughs> offices now. What you probably find more in common amongst many of those names, Mitch, is that they clerked for a Supreme Court justice at some point in their career and have consistently practiced before that court as the main emphasis of their careers for a very, very long period of time. I think that's, that's, all, that's true, and the same is true of their, their resumes in terms of appellate-type work. I think if we're going to look into handicapping the eligible or those on the eligible list, they do have common attributes, including many, many appearances of arguing personally before the high court. So one of the other things I thought interesting about the Solicitor General is as an, as an appointee of the president, the president has the prerogative of calling them in to talk with them about the positions they want him or her to take or the cases they want him to certify, doesn't he? I mean, that, that's another thing that I suspect most people have no idea. The president can influence which cases get before the Supreme Court from that standpoint. And the president can abandon cases that are pending before the Supreme Court. The, the president absolutely becomes a policymaker and um, in that regard. And, you know, oftentimes, Mitch, people feel, well, the court is an institution that should not be political. It is. It's a, th it's a branch of government. It has a political role in our system it's of government. It's a weighty part of the three-legged <laughs> stool. Right. It it's is a check and balance. And, and right. so, you know, it, to think that it's not going to, you know, sort of be a, an object of policy is naive. It's always been, and people will try to fashion cases to get there and fashion cases not to get there. Um, and the president does play a role in that. The Solicitor General um, reports to the Attorney General, and we can come back and explain that after Let's your break. Let's do that after our first break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about the role of the Solicitor General of the United States. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012, for more information. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, President and Dean of Monterey College of Law. I'm joined by attorney and law professor Stephen Wagner, my co-host, and our erstwhile co uh, guest co-host, we like to call him, Michael Cohen, a frequent contributor to the program. We are talking today about the Solicitor General of the United States, a heretofore somewhat unknown and, and perhaps misunderstood position of the governmental lawyers. And what we've been learning is that the Solicitor General is an incredibly influential role, frequently thought of as the top attorney uh, in the United States. They're involved in deciding which cases get brought before the 
Supreme Court of the United States. And, and I thought I might pick up there, because, Michael, in this era right now where we only have eight justices, and depending on which cases get brought up by through which of the federal appellate districts could have a huge influence on what decisions come out of the Supreme Court. More so, I would say, than in a you know, nine-justice panel. Well, it really can. And, you know, um, Mitch, in that regard, it's important to understand that the Solicitor General is two reports away from the president, not one. Um, the Attorney General of the United States, uh, who is the Chief Officer of the United States Department of Justice, is one report away. Um, and we now have uh, Attorney General uh, appointee, presumptively, to be a guy named Mr. Sessions, who has a very sordid history. And the cases that Mr. Sessions brought uh, as, as in, in his role in the Justice Department, many um, were extraordinarily controversial decisions that folks feel... Uh, were designed to set back uh, basic things like equal protection under the 14th Amendment and other fundamental civil rights. He is extraordinarily controversial in that regard. Uh, no one knows what policy he will bring to bear on the office of the Solicitor General, but uh, these are fair questions in an era of Trump. Uh, you know, this so is what we a, don't really a, look at is you know, we've had a lot of focus on Sessions as the Attorney General nominee, but very little focus will come, I suspect, when the... Solicitor General is appointed, and what you're suggesting is for those who have opinions about the direction of how some of this case law is going to be brought in front of the justices, they should absolutely be paying attention to who's the Solicitor General. They should. There have been, I think, 45, 46, something in there. It might not be exactly right. Mid-40s, um, that's how many uh, Solicitor Generals we have had since, from, since 1870. Uh, the first one. Um, and over that time, not one appointment have ever, has ever been declined. Every Solicitor General ever appointed has become uh, the Solicitor General. Um, uh, in the current environment, I think, you know, uh, uh, with the advice and consent of the Senate, who knows what will go on. I, uh, uh, this, is a, this, this next era, uh, however people may feel, uh, about the election will test the Constitution, and that is never a good place to be. It's a frightening proposition, and I think that it could reach levels of appointments at this level as well. Well, the other thing, you know, Stephen, we've talked before about uh, the appointment process of the Supreme Court. It is interesting that five former solicitor generals have ended up as Supreme Court justices. So That's right, and I had forgotten about uh, Elena Kagan. Yeah, most um, most recently, Stephen. That's right. Chief That's Justice right, yeah. John Roberts was was a an associate in the Solicitor General's office. Uh, so you've got uh, Samuel Alito was as well. So in some ways, this is a very small club, isn't it, Michael? Oh yeah, and, and Bork was a Solicitor General who didn't make it to the Supreme Court because he was the Solicitor General under Nixon. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And the, the other thing that I thought was interesting is the volume, the amount of cases that are government related if you look in to see empirically the number of cases i think almost two-thirds of the cases heard before the u.s supreme court do actually involve the solicitor general because they do have a nexus to government 
Yeah, that that would make sense, Stephen. And the you know the Solicitor General's office argues for the amicus as well as when the United States is directly a party. The office itself, um, you know, is there. There are essentially four deputies historically under this under the Solicitor Solicitor General. Three of those folks notably are career deputies. They, they are in the office of the Solicitor General across administrations. They are not political appointees. They are senior level Justice Department, Office of Solicitor General, appellate litigators that are career Supreme Court lawyers. And they're, they're remarkable in their own careers um, for their longevity, the number of cases they've seen, how, the number of administrations they've worked with. Uh, probably the more interesting story in Washington are, are folks like that, <laughs> the, the career officers at the political level that are just not political appointees. One of those deputies is, that's the principal deputy, and that deputy is a, is a political appointee of the Solicitor General himself, um, but it's the AG's appoint appointment, uh, the Supreme Court, or the President's appointment, ultimately. Um, but then there were about 17 to 20 um, assistants that are the line, you know, the sort of the line staff attorneys that are writing briefs and arguing these cases in the Supreme Court as well. Typically, the SG himself or herself will argue only six to nine of those cases that Stephen mentions, and assistants and associates will argue the rest. Well, that's that's the part that I wanted to talk about for just a minute. It's it's there's a lot of back office work in preparing the briefs and doing the research that you've discussed, but the coolest part of the job is every one of them have a chance of arguing in front of the Supreme Court, not just once, but usually could be a dozen times in the course of a year and that's uh, that's a special opportunity isn't it it's an extraordinarily special opportunity i'll i'll tell you an, an anecdote i i uh, a very close friend of mine was the administrative assistant to the chief judge of the supreme court and that nobody knows about that uh, position either but the, that's the guy who runs the court he's like, he's like the coo <laughs> right. you know right. literally gets everybody's payroll out and <laughs> you know it's it's quite of a, a special uh uh thing and i um I got a, a private tour of the court when I was a very young lawyer and got to walk up to the council tables and there was a post-it note there. <laughs> a post-it note. A post-it note <laughs> from that morning's <laughs> argument. And I took the post-it note and looked at it and it said, effect on U.S. Treasury. And I was just, I was a young prosecutor at the time and I'm like, this is so different than my post-it notes which just say, this guy's lying. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, Michael, was that, was that the word affect or effect? Effect, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Effect on the U.S. Treasury. It's just... Uh, Interesting. So, you know, the, the, the SGs, the, the, if, if, any of, if any of our listeners are ever in Washington during the term, one thing that so few people do that I, that I wish foreign visitors, tourists and things would as well, go to our Supreme Court and watch an argument. I have always felt that is such a wonderful reflection of an important part of our nation to sit in that courtroom and hear how the lawyers and the justices conduct themselves and the things that they're arguing about show something that is very distinct to our Constitution and our process amongst the world. And it's really quite extraordinary. Um, and when you, when you go see an argument with anybody from the SG's office, to Mitch's point, it is always, to me, just stunning how relaxed, how comfortable 
the SG attorneys are speaking with the nine or eight now justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, for me, my heart would be beating 300 <laughs> miles per hour. Right. They seem to get up there as if they, you know, it's their morning coffee. They have a case this morning, they argue it and they walk back to their office and they write another brief and it's just another day. And that's pretty cool, honestly. <laughs> so we did, during the break, we did mention that you and I were talking that you know, the, the SG has this unique relationship that we talked about in the first segment that they can be called in to talk with the Supreme Court. They likewise can be called in to talk to the President of the United States. They really do bridge two of the three primary arms of government, don't they? The judiciary and the executive. That's really unique, isn't it? it it's almost unique. It, it, it's, it's unique that somebody bridges those two. The other officer of government, if you will, um, that bridges to Mitch is the vice president of the United States. The vice president has an office in the White House, and the vice president is also the president pro temp of the Senate and breaks ties. There and the vice so they bridge between Congress and the executive. Between Congress and the executive. And the, but the SG has a very important role with Congress. The SG defends congressional legislation. Uh, so long as there is any reasonable basis to do so. So when so, when someone challenges an act of Congress as unconstitutional, the SG is defending the Congress and right. its action in that kind of a, of a lawsuit. And that kind of a lawsuit is a very common type of lawsuit. So in that case, one might say that the, the Solicitor General is really the only officer in government that actually has a type of primary relationship with all three areas of government, the executive, the judiciary, and Congress. Absolutely right. That's amazing. It's, a, it's absolutely extraordinary. And there are, are stories like this about Washington, D.C. that are so unknown, I think, to many people. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, there are thousands of federal governments in Washington, if you will. And the SG is one of those that plays a very, very important role in our nation's history. And near and dear to Stephen's heart, I'll wrap this back up. The first SG of the United States was a guy named Bristow. Um, and Bristow, Stephen, was a prosecutor. He was a United States attorney in Kentucky, and he was famous for prosecuting a gang called the Ku Klux Klan. He sent 29 of them to prison, made a name for himself, and in the era of Reconstruction got himself appointed the first uh, Solicitor General of the United States. So, Stephen, the first SG came from your ranks. Hey, that's great, Michael. That was a true live history lesson. I did not know that. That's a really tough way to make your bones. By the way, the his partner took his place in Kentucky. Uh, that guy, his name was Harlan. He became one of the most famous Supreme Court justices in history. That's right. Justice, Justice Harlan did the concurring opinion in the Katz case, <laughs> a very important Fourth Amendment case. And, and in a few others. So let's, Absolutely. Let's broaden out a bit. So we've talked a lot about the Solicitor General because we see now the importance that that role has in both forming law, getting cases in front of the Supreme Court, uh, actually this this delicate balance where they dance between the executive and Congress and the Supreme Court, but certainly not the only federal lawyer. And, and in fact, there's, there are government lawyers down the entire spectrum 
of the justice system from the local community where you'd have a city attorney up to the solicitor general and the attorney general. I'd like to spend some of the time for the rest of this program talking about some of those roles because I think people don't always understand the role that the public lawyers play. So so we've been we've been talking about the federal, but Stephen, let's flip back around on the other side. So you practice laws and as a government lawyer at the local level. So talk about the spectrum down in a community. Who represents the government and who do they represent? Yeah, sure. So if we looked at California and as we know, there's 58 counties in California, and each county, by law, has an elected prosecutor, and that would be the district attorney, who's the sitting and top law enforcement officer of each county, and as district attorney, that individual presides over various criminal-type cases that are all born out of statutes, and is given responsibility to seek justice in the form of pursuing criminal prosecutions and uh, in many cases deciding not to file charges. So obviously the mission is to seek justice. Uh, But within each county, there's also other participants and other quasi-government lawyers. I can give some examples, city attorneys, county council. And I think what differentiates those roles a lot is the jurisdictional limits and the types of cases that they get involved with. And for instance, our government code in California would have a definition of the prosecutor. Okay, hang on to that. We're going to let you stop with the definition of the prosecutor. We're going to take another brief break and we're going to pick it up right there when we come back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about the role of government attorneys. Don't go away. We'll be right back. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified or lodged objections to the treaties. 
These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The President and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. And today we've been talking about the role of government lawyers. We started with a discussion about the Solicitor General, who I hope is now not the most mysterious lawyer in the justice system for you. And then we've shifted over to talk about lawyers that we've heard of more likely in our local communities, in our cities and counties. And Stephen, you were talking about the role of city attorneys, county attorneys, and district attorneys. I, I would point out that one thing really jumped out at me and as for those of us who are poli-sci majors you know there's always this balance between the the federal model of government and the state and isn't it interesting that your city attorney and district attorney and attorney general at the state and local level are virtually all elected positions and yet every lawyer we're going to talk about at the federal level the u.s attorney the attorney general the solicitor general are all appointed positions that is an interesting distinction, definitely. You know, in, in California, with the exception of the city and county of San Francisco, all of the district attorneys are elected for four-year terms. San Francisco is unique, of course, because it's called the city and county of San Francisco. Uh, that is a five-year term, but most are four-year terms. And you are right, Mitch. Uh, there are no appointments for district attorneys unless, of course, an elected district attorney uh, bows out of office uh, midterm, in which case there could be a board of supervisors appointment, but that would be interim. So I wanted to talk, before we move back, to talk about some of the other federal attorneys that I think people might want to know about. But, you know, one thing I always thought was interesting is the confusion about, for example, the role of the district attorney or the prosecutor, the, the role you have on behalf of the, of the county. You know, something, as many times that, let's say an incident happens and, it, and someone is injured in a crime and the district attorney 
decides to bring the charges. And, and sometimes the victim of the crime thinks that the district attorney is acting as their lawyer in that case. But that's really not the, the situation, is it, Stephen? Yeah, no, you're right, Mitch. And that's actually an area that there's a lot of confusion over. Uh, the California Constitution, and specifically Marcy's Law, which brought a lot more uh, empowerment to victims of crimes, Victims of crimes have always had the right to be apprised of the various procedural steps and cases, and certainly to know what potential outcomes may result in the form of criminal dispositions if the case does settle by virtue of a stipulated plea or negotiation. But, you know, typically the victim does not guide the course of a prosecution. You know, the, the elected district attorney and the trial deputies are representing the people, and that really means the state and pursuing justice on behalf of the people of the state. And certainly the victim's input is very important. It's vital. So, too, is victim's cooperation in a lot of cases, especially crimes of violence. But the reality is that the charging decision and the direction and all of the tactical decisions vest in the prosecution. And so, so the victim really, in many of those cases, is, is just a witness on behalf of the prosecution, a critical witness. But they're a witness. They're not, they're not the person being represented by the district attorney or the trial attorneys. Yeah, they're not technically. But, you know, when you use the word just, that you want to be careful there because it's, it's really critical that the victim be constantly updated and apprised of what's going on. And, you know, in fact, in our office, we have a very strong victim witness unit that's really vested with the responsibility of ensuring that the victims are constantly aware of everything that happens. But a good example would be a victim who does not want the defendant to be prosecuted. You know, that's a conundrum that prosecutors face statewide, and it happens a lot, unfortunately, in domestic violence cases where you'll have a reluctant or a recanting victim. And that places the prosecutor in a very awkward position because there may be overwhelming evidence that there was a crime, yet the victim who was originally listed as the victim in police reports and certainly listed by initials usually in a charging document suddenly has a change of heart. Well, what do you do? What's the right thing to do? Well, usually the right thing to do is to pursue justice if there was facts to support that there was a crime. So that's a real challenging example. So right in there. this case, the district attorney, as you say, representing the people, it's the people writ large as far as the entire community, but in this case, it's also the people writ small as to the individual victim of the crime as well. That's right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, the last piece of it that I just want to toss in is that let's say that person was injured as part of, of this incident. You know, the district attorney is not going to bring a civil case for them to get uh, repaid for their damages. That, that's when you have to shift from the criminal part of the justice system to the civil part of the justice system. And if someone wants to pursue that, they then have to get a private attorney who will be acting on their behalf. That is normally the case, Mitch. However, there is some overlap in terms of the right to restitution, for instance, 
in a criminal case, there certainly is a right to restitution, and that's embodied in Morrissey's law also. But uh, excessive taking cases, for instance, uh, embezzlement would be a good example, or a grand theft case. If a victim has been dispossessed of property or lost monetary value, we do, as prosecutors, have the right to pursue restitution, which really is almost a form of a monetary recovery. But you are right, there's another venue to pursue that, and that would typically be in the civil case. And so, so shifting back over, so we've talked about the, the local and the county and there's the state. So there's, there are attorneys that represent each state. They would be generally under the state attorney general's office, state's attorneys. Uh, but then, Michael, we get back to the federal level, and, and the solicitor general is just one of thousands of government representatives that are lawyers, correct? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I said it earlier, I often do, um, having lived in Washington, D.C. for uh, virtually all of my adult life, um, professionally and personally, uh, one of the things you come to realize is that Washington is thousands of federal governments. And, and part of that realization comes in what I call independent agencies, Mitch, um, that are not part of Congress. They are not executive branch agencies. They don't report to the president. They literally have an independent composition um, statutorily created where a president makes appointments as commissioners, but the terms are staggered and um, uh, the agencies themselves have delegated adjudicatory and rulemaking powers from Congress and other types of things. So, and, so for example, like the Federal Trade Commission, Fe would federal, that be one? Federal Trade Commission is absolutely one of the major agencies in that regard. The Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, uh, the reason that so I can't say the words I, I would like about to, to say, say right now without so Jason you, running out here. Yeah, and, yep. <laughs> uh, you know, Jason, you better wake up for this. I'm about to say one. Um, you know, the FCC uh, regulates what we can say here and so many other things. The Securities Exchange Commission, sure. the SEC, another big one. Those agencies that are independent, Mitch, have their own staffs of lawyers. Uh, generally speaking, the Justice Department attorneys represent most aspects of the federal government. But those independent agencies have their own government lawyers, their own system of decision-making, etc., their own general counsels who argue appeals and will argue in the Supreme Court as well. Um, so, you know, it's important to keep in mind, uh, you know, Washington is a federal city, and a good part of that are, uh, are a lot of lawyers representing the federal government and working for the federal government in uh, political appointments and in careers. So we've talked a little about the, the criminal side of law, the civil side, but what you bring up is that most people don't realize there's an entire administrative law side as well. And so some of those agencies, both at the state and federal level, have an entire administrative procedures where there are hearings with judges who render opinions, and you have to go through that entire process before after at the end of that you might be able to then take it into state or federal court. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, my whole, as a young prosecutor and then subsequently as a private practice attorney in Washington, D.C., I used to love it when my airplane landed <laughs> at what was then called Washington National Airport, subsequently is now called Reagan. I don't know. We dropped the Washington National part of it. It used to be George Washington National Airport, then it's Reagan National Airport, but either way, it's, you know, national to me. And every time I landed, I felt like, whew, 
back home in the lawyer's safe haven. Because <laughs> when I was outside of Washington, people could make a lawyer joke. But if you make a lawyer joke in Washington, you're likely to be tarred, feathered, and drummed out. <laughs> so here's the one case where I, you know, I usually don't fall on this side and leave it to Stephen. But early in my career, I was an assistant attorney general in Texas. So I was a state of Texas attorney, and I represented the insurance, banking, and securities division of the state attorney general's office. And my clients were the Banking Commission, the Savings and Loan Commission, and the, the State Securities Commission, as, as well as we also regulated pawn shops. And so of all the things we did... None of the former things were interesting, but the laws related to pawn shops were the most interesting. <laughs> I can imagine. It's, uh, you know, and, and Stephen, this is now we understand why pawn shops are, are basically the you know money laundering and fencing fronts in the state of Texas. They're regulated by the banking and insurance department. <laughs> now, 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 I do have to tell you that I didn't realize it until I got into that area of law that for large segments of the population who don't have banks and checking accounts, the pawn shop was their bank. And if paycheck ran short, they needed medicine on a Friday, you take the shotgun in, you pawn the shotgun, you need 50 bucks to get some medicine, you get the medicine, you get paid the next week, you take it back in, you get your shotgun back. That most, most of the transactions in pawn shops are just that, just very temporary small loans to right. bridge those folks. That, that makes all the sense in the world, and I'm reminded that our Voice America listenership is substantially European, and they will not understand a single word that you just said. <laughs> they don't have pawn shops in Europe? <laughs> I think they do, but they go by a fancier name. <laughs> well, uh, this has really been interesting, and I hope this has helped our listeners uh, think through the justice system. I, in some ways, I guess it sounds very complex and convoluted, but but for those of us in the area of practice, it it does make sense. And I and I think what it reminds us is that as citizens, lawyers and non-lawyers, it's really important to pay attention to these things because sometimes these down-ballot decisions on the locals, Stephen, for example, district attorney makes a huge impact on the cases that get brought in that community and the county attorney helps set policy related to land use, water use, environmental issues. I mean, those are, those are really influential. And then at the federal level, you know, those federal elections have all types of influence across these various agencies. And these appointments are far deeper than just the you know, cabinet-level appointments that we're seeing now. Uh, Michael, any guess as to who's going to be the new Solicitor General? Not a guess. I, can't, I cannot possibly guess what, <laughs> what insane, you know, when an insane person is making appointments, there's no way to rationally <laughs> predict the future. I had to give him one last shot, Stephen. All right, oh, wow. we'll, we'll come back at another time, and I'll give you fair time on that. Anyway, you've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Uh, thank you for being here with us today. We've been talking about government lawyers, particularly the Solicitor General. As we suggest to you each week, you can get replays of this show at voiceamerica.com and wagnerandwinnick.com. And until next week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer.
I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give clients first awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.